listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I've received a lot of emails over the last week for some reason asking about tradition and how tradition fits in to not only what we do here at Infinite Smile, but uh, uh, basically the, 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 the tenor of many of the notes was, doesn't religion suck? I thought this was really interesting. Um, doesn't religion suck? How do you feel about it, Mike? It's kind of the, well, uh, um, as if because what Infinite Smile has endeavored to do is kind of break out of the traditional mold that we are somehow enemies of religion or, uh, you know, at war with faith, which I certainly don't find to be the case. If anything, I look at what Infinite Smile offers as being an alternative to either finding yourself confronted with a tradition that no longer seems to fit quite right, or um, negating one's spirituality altogether. That there's this middle path that we can take that is grounded in, in uh, I should say, tradition but is not attached to it. I think there is incredible value, having said all this, I think there's incredible value in having traditions work to help us find where it is that we are clinging. That after all is the source of all of our suffering. And that is said in just about every single faith structure. Our clinging is what generates our pain, whether we are clinging to life or clinging to life as we knew it, or clinging to an image of what we would like to see sometime in the future. This clinging, this grasping, as my teacher used to like to say, is what um, fuels this entire, this entire, uh, chunk of pain that most of us find ourselves walking into again and again and again. <coughs> and so I, I was uh, reminded then by a, uh, a, a several comments that were thrown at me when I was, when I was, I guess I'd, I'd been a, a practitioner for several years at this point. I, I, I kind of lose track, but uh, my teacher said, as long as you can uncover a space where there is no abiding mind, you are free. And um, I can just picture myself, you know, taking out my notebook and writing that, no, no abiding mind, okay, I got that, yeah, no abiding. Uh, what's that? What is no abiding mind? No abiding mind is 
a space whereby we are not holding on to or we might even perceive it as being held down by any thoughts, any concepts, any belief structures. It doesn't mean we jettison all of our beliefs out the, you know, out the door. That's not the, that's not the point, but that we are no longer held by our minds. We are no longer held by what we identify with. We are no longer held by what we see as good, bad, right, wrong, this, that. And yet, we don't just spin out of control into some type of relativism where it's like, oh, hey, since it's all good, I can do anything. There are no rules. There are rules. It's one rule, actually. Um, you know, you have the Ten Commandments. In Buddhism, we have the, uh, the Ten Precepts. And they're remarkably similar in some respects. But basically, all the Ten Commandments and all of the Ten Precepts, at least if you look at it kind of in a Judeo-Christian slash Buddhist way, they're all saying one basic deal. All of our ethics boil down to do not do harm. Do not do harm. Do not do harm to yourself or other. How is it that you harm something? Think of the most beautiful thing in nature you could imagine that's about, for me, for me at least, it's a rose. I've, ever since I was a little kid, totally taken with the rose. It just was a, a symphony to the senses, except taste. They don't taste good. <laughs> Although I tried it. Um, I, I pretty much tasted everything, including um, oleander, which I don't recommend. Um, my mom can tell you the story later, but uh, uh, Michael, it's very important that you never eat this. All right, okay. And I just had to. I had to try it out. And of course, um, she was way ahead of me, because Ipecac was pretty much her best friend. She'd you know, feed me that stuff, and then, then I was fine. But the, uh, <laughs> the idea that a rose embodies the entire universe, it's this beautiful spiral. The same math that governs the spiral of the rose petals is the same math that governs the spin or spiral of our DNA, is the same math that governs the spiral of the Milky Way. It's all right there. How do you crush that beauty? grasp it. Same thing applies to every other aspect of our lives. You want to wreck a relationship, grasp it. You want to crush another human, grasp at them, cling. You want to destroy yourself, grasp at your own mind. That will generate suffering. You want to upend a goal that you might have? Grasp at it. Now, as somebody who was, I'm um, hearing this, this teaching kind of come forth, and I remember at the time when I first heard that idea that, you know, grasping is how you, how you wreck the whole, the whole show. I remember thinking, you're full of it. 
I've gotten to where I am because I can grasp things. I can grasp concepts. I can grasp, you know, physical stuff. I can, I can, I'm athletic. I can grasp anything. I can learn any system and I can perform, execute and deliver. And you can count on that, which basically is you can grasp that. So how's that working out for you? Not so good. This life of grasping is exhausting. And that's really quite honestly how I felt, but I didn't know how to let go. And so often I find that practitioners just, how, how do we let go? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. And it's going to sound like a Nike commercial. Just do it. Start small. In this next 30-minute meditation that we have, try just really letting go. Try not holding on. Try being good to yourself and everybody else by fully expressing yourself in your meditation. A full expression, the way I'm looking at it here, comes from utter, complete, and total stillness, silence. It involves no words. Full expression of who you really are does not involve concept. It involves being. Can you just be? Can you just be in this space, knowing that the person to your left and the person to your right are working as hard as they can? <coughs> Even if they're making too much noise for you, they're working as hard as they can. Everybody in here has the opportunity to turn the heat up a little bit on their practice. Just try to be. Watch your thoughts. Watch your feelings. Watch the dialogues. Watch the scripts. Watch those little videos that we've authored, especially the repetitive thoughts. Just watch them. Give them space. Welcome them without grasping them. And then we'll float on out of here. So one of the great 20th century sages uh, said, guy by the name of Ramana Maharshi. Some of you may have heard of uh, his work. He basically, there's a, there's a cool little story surrounding him where he had a vision of a particular uh, mountain, Arunchala, I guess was the name of the mountain, and he um, decided to go to, this, go to this mountain and had a spiritual awakening <coughs> that floored him to the point of where he just kind of decided, I don't even want to feed myself. The blast, in other words, of the infinite that just kind of took over was so intense that he, he just kind of collapsed and fell into this one place and kind of ended up blissing out. And uh, the community fortunately uh, decided, hey, we've got a guy here who's, uh, who's uh, clearly on doing something 
um, has met with something, has, you know, whatever. Let's, let's keep him fed. So they, they fed him, and uh, he didn't find the need to speak at all. Uh, and finally, people would start asking him questions, and he'd scribble stuff down. And, and his scribblings, evidently, were quite profound. And so then people in the community started to go, oh, wait a minute, this guy's a sage. This guy's got something, this guy's seen something. He's got something maybe that could be useful. <coughs> Over time, uh, Ramana kept, uh, kept kind of at it. He still wasn't speaking. He would just, you know, scribble, eat as it came, you know. And then it took him a tremendous amount of time to kind of integrate this uh, experience back into the world. Uh, years, years before he essentially became, if you will, a teacher. And for anybody who's, who's done spiritual work for long enough, you sat on your cushion for enough hours and so forth, you, you meet up with experiences like this, uh, <coughs> although not, maybe not quite as intense as Ramana Maharshi's happened to have been. I keep wondering like, what that would have been like if this had happened to him in um, you know, Lafayette, California. You know, if he's sitting out in front of the Roundup Saloon and suddenly just, ugh. You know, <laughs> probably, things probably, I don't know that they would have worked out for him exactly the same way. Um, but you know, you hear these stories of, of sages that run into this type of, you know, really fast, immediate, powerful awakening experience, and for them to kind of embody it becomes a real trick. Other people who take kind of a long time to gradually generate a stillness practice, okay, and then all of a sudden, you know, they get kind of knocked, they've already done all this, if you will, groundwork. So that the groundlessness of the enlightened perspective can bizarrely kind of take root. <coughs> if you saw um, Avatar, there's this, by the way, if you haven't, make sure you see it in 3D. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> but there is this beautiful um, uh, mythic space where the mountains float. And this is such a, first of all, visually, it's just stunning to see how Cameron, I, I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's visually incredibly powerful, beautiful. But it reminded me so much of what, what our practice is like. We, we oftentimes think of ourselves as almost mountainous in our stillness and so forth. Yet what is it that's around this stillness? Or rather, what is it around, that's around this mountainousness? Is that, is that a word? Mountainousness? It is now, yeah, exactly. Space. It's as if we are, we are suspended in space, even though we, we consider, well, no, 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 there's gravity, and I'm held down to the ground, fortunately, because there's gravity. Um, we are kind of floating. We are indeed levitating, because we are indeed space. <coughs> to bring this back to where uh, I was talking about Ramana Maharshi, his spaciousness 
and the way the way it hit him was was it was severe and it wasn't uh, uh, it didn't really land in a field that had been tilled so the flowering of it while beautiful was kind of difficult for him to kind of reintegrate with the world for this reason we sit still we practice silence because what this is doing is it's tilling the soil for a field that can support the growth of awakening. And it's also critical that our awakening be recognized as something that is also cultural. I mean, it, this is really, really important, something we overlook all the time. I think that um, the Enlightenment experience itself may not have changed over time very much, but its context has radically changed. You could have, for instance, an Enlightenment experience, you know, 2,000 years ago in, uh, in uh, you know, outside of Jerusalem, and you could, you know, actually see we are all one, but we are all many, and we live kind of in between those two spaces. All of these things could, could indeed have happened, but it still happens and is practiced within a culture of, of uh, you know, within a society. Same thing happens for us now. The cool thing is, as this awakened consciousness becomes more and more readily available to more and more people, we can actually put it to use in ways that are amazingly effective in ways that resonate through, say, networks like the internet and things like that, through communication that never could have happened 2,000 years ago. So it's a really, this is a really kind of an auspicious time. It's kind of a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I, I think it's important that we not waste it on trying to find pleasure or escape most of us live our lives. The, the most common, if you will, the, the lowest common denominator of humanity is that we live lives that are deeply rooted in fear and desire. And it's not that fear and desire are bad. Sometimes they can indeed be helpful. But when we are caught by our fear or caught by our desire, when we cling to our fear, create all sorts of stories about it, we cling to our desires. That's when the train gets derailed. I don't really like that metaphor, but it's what came out of my face. So it's when that's when things kind of, you know, really get off track. We 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 get off the path. So how how is it that we you know we we kind of we stay true? Well, um, number one. Recognize what you are caught by in those two areas. What kind of desire catches you? Do you want something that's newer, faster, better, stronger? Speaking of culture again, we have a culture that's really good at helping you uncover that deep want within. Just watch TV for 15 minutes and you'll find something. The, the one that cracks me up most of all is the uh, uh, recently. You guys ever seen uh, the ads for Axe body spray? Where it shows some guy, you know, he's, he's just kind of, 
you know, normal dude. And then he puts the Axe body spray on and suddenly his skin peels off and he's this cut stud that women are just like, Wah! you know. And you know that every 14 to 19 year old male is going, I wonder if that might, nah, yeah, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> What is it, what desires are you caught by? What wishes are you caught by? What do you fear? Most of us, Freud was really good about saying how, you know, well, it's death, you know, we're all afraid of death. Uh, yet, paradoxically, if you talk to most people, they're not so much afraid of their own death as much as they're afraid of losing those that are close to them seems to be more powerful. More people are more afraid of financial ruin than they are afraid of losing their own life. Interesting. Point is, if we can begin to study where this fear is, if we can with total open curiosity look at our fear, open curiosity, look at our desires, and create a friendly relationship with them. Not like, I shouldn't have that, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't want that, and damn, I, I gotta stop being afraid of that. Instead of those things, those dialogues, those little stories we have in our head that our ego plays and replays and replays, instead, if we can begin to just look very carefully at those fears as they arise, at those desires as they, as they kind of hook us. We're in much better shape. That's where we begin to integrate. That's where we begin to till the soil. That's where we become ready for um, the massive blast of silence that the universe offers us every single moment. We tend not to, once that we become ready, or as we say in Zen, um, <laughs> awakening is an accident. Meditation makes you accident prone, right? Instead of that accident hitting us and then us falling on, you know, you know, on our backs in the middle of the street saying, oh, it's okay if something hits me, I don't really care anymore. Something much more powerful can, much more useful, can begin to express itself. So I wanted to read, read you something that I, I have, again, this, is, this has been coming up a lot, so I just want to make sure I can, I can hit you with a little bit of, uh, of what I've written about. Um, The fact remains whether we are attaching to the absolute or to the things in the world, we are still locked into and caught by the cause of all suffering, attachment. One of the most important conversations I've ever had with any of my teachers involved this very issue. During a silent retreat, I had, ex I had an experience in meditation that left me in a state that still, even after all these years, leaves me breathless. It was like I just melted away and what was left was just a shimmer of life and the knowing that this shimmer was, for lack of a better term, me. 
It was an experience similar to the ones I'd had years before I ever started to meditate, but this even left me more off balance. All things in my awareness seemed to exist in a certain poignant disarray. All that I witnessed was within my awareness, which was nothing other than me. Paradoxically, it was as if nothing mattered, since all things were imbued with beautiful and boundless grace, and yet all things were filled with meaning. For several days, this state of deep, silent awareness carried itself through my sleep, my eating, and my sitting. The chores that I did around the meditation hall each morning became less of a concern, and I started to miss areas that I normally swept clean. But I did not care. At one point, I even chose to sleep through morning meditation since nothing really mattered. I was filled with a certain feeling of open completion. Nothing needed to be done. Everything was forever already finished. I lingered in this spaciousness as I approached the door to my teacher's sitting room before one of our meetings. There was a distinct sense arising within me that for the first time, there were no questions to ask him. There was only the shimmer. I felt nicely stuck in this expansive state of consciousness. I entered his room, bowed to the altar, and then stepped sideways, positioning, positioning myself directly in front of him. I looked into his eyes and was amazed at how I felt totally anesthetized to any gain or loss, honor or disgrace, praise or blame, pain or pleasure. There was no ego to be found. Returning his stare, I paused for a moment. I then bowed deeply to my teacher, who sat perfectly upright in full lotus. After my bow, I adjusted myself into a position that awkwardly mirrored his while his eyes kept staring through me. I didn't feel scared or on edge as usual. I didn't worry about appearing like I was progressing along the path. I just sat, reflecting my teacher's presence, quietly wondering what could be better than for me to stay like this. How remarkable it seemed that I was so unattached, unbothered, uncaring, and unmoved by this life. Surely this must be it, I thought. I must be done. <laughs> Not if you're looking to awaken beyond name and form, my teacher said. I'd either accidentally lost control of my inner dialogue or he had just read my mind. Both seemed equally plausible. Suddenly, all my bliss started to drain from me like water out of a bathtub. I started to get apprehensive and more than a little bit fearful. Where was all of my openness going? Within a few seconds, I felt like a balloon had popped and all my hard-won freedom was gone. You can't stay there, he smiled. Why not, I asked. Isn't that the whole point? Living from deep stillness is not the same as clinging to deep stillness. Then he smiled, and as usual, I felt like I was totally exposed in his presence. We call this attachment to non-attachment, Zen sickness he said, and there's a cure for it. I was amazed, no words. Then, just like the moment before, when I thought he'd read my mind, he said, go to the Zendo on time each morning and make sure that your sweeping improves. <laughs> Do all of this with your full awareness and don't get distracted by the feeling of stillness. It will make a difference to everyone. Talk about an ass kicking. It was so perfect. It was so perfectly placed. And this is what tradition can help with. This is where it becomes so important that in my case, I had all these great guides. You know, these people who had gone before, who knew what they were talking about, 
and new silence from a place that was deep, deep within. And they showed that there was so much more than bliss in this process. That there was so much more than just escaping. That there was so much more than just not having desire and not having fear. It was about incorporating a very spacious relationship about the desires and the fears that will inevitably ar arise. <coughs> so my wish for each of you is that you get your ass kicked. <laughs> that you have, I mean, compassionately, of course, uh, but that there, is, that there is less and less self associated with this and more and more expansiveness associated with this practice. And this invariably shows up as we begin to just sit still. This invariably shows up as we begin to recognize what's always underneath whatever might be going crazy on the surface of life's waters, what's deep down. And being able to kind of tap into that is something we gain over time. It's, we, we gain access to it. And then pretty soon we realize, oh my goodness, I didn't gain anything. It's always been there. It's not outside of me. It's all within this thing I call me, which is somewhat inaccurate. There's more. There is stuff that is beyond mind that realization doesn't stop, that you're never fully cooked. There's always more time to spend in the oven. There's always more to open to. And there are always more smiles to be had, even if it's not entirely funny. Yes. Um, on the issue of creating space around fear, we find that the stakes go up, that reality can re rehooks me again and again, so somehow it feels incomplete just to say, oh, I'm really afraid financially because apparently I'm overspending. Oh. Okay, put a nice bowl around that and put space around that. And so I feel like there's something missing because, yes, that can be helpful, but you need to deal with it. Right. And that's where the integration occurs. If you just put space around it, that's the same thing as just camping out in front of the roundup. If you put space around it and let that spaciousness inform the choices you make surrounding the issue, now we're talking integration. Does that make sense? Keep going. <laughs> yeah, a little more. A little more there. Keep, just keep talking. Yeah, bald guy. Come on. Come on. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of like a Dharma jukebox. <laughs> Kachink, yeah. Yeah, that's going to require another quarter. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
let, let me before, before I before I give you the next song, uh, what tell, get real clear with your question because it sounds like what I heard you ask was, okay, yeah, but I've got fear, and sure I can like look at the fear and so forth, and looking at the fear is the actual creation of space around that fear. Then what? Is that what you were saying? Is that what you were asking? Then what? Tell me about reality. Well, the reality is, is that if, <coughs> let's say, if I'm overspending money. Right. Is, if you're overspending. Doing that, I'm going to have a big problem. Right. I can meditate on it until the cows come home. Ain't going to help. I have a problem. Right. Yeah. So, and it's a fear that I might live with on a daily basis. It's kind of, it's permeating my existence, so. Right. Well, if you, are, if you are afraid, if you are deeply afraid and that fear is permeating your daily existence because of a behavior, uh, then studying the behavior helps you get at the roots of, of that particular activity. Why are you overspending? I mean, these are great questions. Reality, if, I want to be really careful about the word reality because if we're talking about reality, we have two kinds. We have conventional, everyday reality, you know, circumstantial life, and then we have the absolute, the unmanifested, the infinite, that reality. Both are true. Now, the observer is home in the infinite, okay? The ego that spends money to get things to make it feel safe and more permanent is in the conventional circumstance, circumstantial life. When we start looking at the ego and watching its spending habits, and we realize, we, I mean, it's the, this is where the infinite smile shows up because we start seeing, oh my gosh, you, you actually believe that if you buy that, you will be more complete. Yeah, you take you, you take the observation to the level of, of total expanse, where where you are you're actually studying with total wonder and curiosity what's going on in your life, and then you employ that openness into making choices. It's not like you. Meditation is not going to pay the bills. <coughs> Trust me. <laughs> It is not going to pay the bills, but your relationship to your livelihood changes radically as meditation and stillness begins to unfold within your life. You start seeing decisions that it's like, oh, please. All decisions are made either on a personal, you know, personal me, mine, or they can be infused with no me, no mine. And the no me, no mind, when it, starts in, when it starts actually cracking open that me, mine mindset, all of a sudden we start realizing we don't need all that we think we need. And that takes care of a lot of, a lot of that, that habitual consumption. If you think about it, consumption is just, just a way of anesthetizing us because we don't want to deal with what's real. If the observer can get to the roots of what's actually going on, what, actually what's real, then it's no longer a mystery. 
And if it's no longer a mystery, it can't hold us unconsciously. Yeah. The 20th century sage that um, stopped talking. Ramana. Ramana Maharshi, yeah. What um, tethered him? Well, that was, that was kind of the, well, what is tether? What, what held him? Well, yeah, what, what, um, why did he start talking? I mean, what, what is it that, um, what do you think that, you know, he just kind of laid there and didn't just talk or do anything just kind of after he had this experience, nothing. But there was something that got him to, I don't, I wouldn't pretend to know what was going through his choice to, to teach, you know, to, to kind of come back into the world, other than the fact that people relocated so they could be near him. There was a way that, he, and, and it's so bizarre to think of this in Western terms, that this would never happen here, right? Um, but that a community kind of started to form around him. And I mean, some great teachers came out of his silence, you know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what brought him back. I don't know what made him think, uh, maybe this is, it's important that I do this. Uh, you know, start speaking again and so forth. Um, but my sense is, uh, at the core of those, those, when you get hammered like that, at the core of one's expression is tenderness. And so his, I mean, his realization was a flood of tenderness. And kind of coming back from the bliss of the tenderness into its articulation is a very natural move. It's what the Buddha did. It's what Christ did. It's what I mean. You look at at the big the big guns. You know, they all they all did this. They all went oh, and then came back. They came, they went up the mountain and then came back down the mountain. And so, you know, what caused him to come back down the mountain? I don't know. But I'm sure glad he did. He he really offers up some. Just I steal from him constantly, <laughs> constantly, uh, saying stuff that that he. You know, uh, I don't footnote like I should probably. I'll try harder. <laughs> yeah, Tim? Is there a significance to how long this sit for? I've heard all kinds of different theories about you can do it while you're awake or does it matter? Well, I hope you're, you're meditating while you're awake. Yeah. That's my number one. Yeah. But I, I, mean. I do, I do. I, th I think that the, um, I just like teasing you because it's fun. Um, the, the uh, I mean, the main thing, Tim, is that you are still for a long period of time. Why is it, why do we sit for between 30 and 40 minutes? That's a mystery. I don't really know. Uh, I know for me, uh, uh, and most of the guys that we, they used to divide the, uh, during one particular uh, uh, practice period where I was a, a monk for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. They had the guys on one side, more or less, and the girls on the other side, more or less. 
And there was the most amazing shift that started to occur. You could feel it in the peop the guys I was sitting next to. I could feel it in them usually right around minute 25, minute 30. Everything just kind of just kind of opened. And so you have 10 minutes of that, you know, delta brainwave state of just, oh, you know. Prior to that, it's a settling, right? This is why the 10-minute meditation, it's okay. Um, uh, I would love to get an EEG on my noggin right now to see what happens after 10 minutes for me because I know it's different than when I started, you know. Uh, that probably won't happen, but still, the, the idea is that as we, be, we get more and more schooled in this, our drop-in time, we, we tend to drop in much more quickly. I know that, uh, and I mean, I guess I'm saying this to be encouraging for those of you who are really struggling with your meditation. It gets, it gets better if you give real attention to this stuff. Um, the sit, while I'm an ad, I really advocate sitting every day for whatever amount of time you can, I'm... I'm especially fond of the 40-minute, the 40-minute, you know, time frame. I don't know. There's something happens between minute 30 and 40. That's just really, really kind of a uh, a nice, a nice uh, start to your day if you can do it in the morning. Uh, I still struggle to this day. I still struggle with afternoon meditations. They're hilarious for me. I go to sleep, and so then it's like, then it's like. You just, you bring the, I mean, there's still is full-on meditative awareness in sleep as you're falling asleep. Um, and I don't do the heat engine thing anymore, you know, where you, <laughs> you know, those little, those little, uh, you know what I'm talking about, the little, you know, and they just, and it's really funny when you watch people doing it in the Zendo, it's always usually after lunch and so forth, or like on our retreats, uh, our weekend retreats, man, those afternoon sessions crack me up. I love trying to like peek in the window and just look at people because they're... <laughs> <laughs> you <know. laughs> but bringing, you know, if you start falling asleep in meditation, awesome. Bring your awareness into that beautiful event, falling asleep. I just find it hard to do that long. Yeah. 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, do your best. Work up to it if you can. And if you can't do it, I mean, it's not like you're going to, you know, Zen jail or anything. It's just... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but give, give it your best shot. That, that, that chunk of time, on the flip of that, I would never meditate for more than an hour. I, I see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see that happening. Okay, all right. Well, then we're good. We're good. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, uh, the, there are very few injuries that I've ever seen uh, on, you know, meditation. I don't know if Zendos have to, like, pull insurance or anything, you know, just in case there's, like, some crazy meditation injury. But uh, I, <laughs> there, there, was, uh, there, there was a time when I, I, started, I started noticing a little bit of sciatica. That's the only time, and that's the only thing. I mean, even the knees start to flex into their, you know, it's like, oh, no, I'm causing damage. And it's like, hey, actually, I'm not. Or the, the, the big one, some of you may have felt this. My foot is so asleep, I really can't feel it. I really, I mean, am, is this okay? Yeah, it's fine. It's going to come back, you know? It's going to, you'll, you'll be okay. You will, you'll not lose your foot. 
I mean, unless you try to like run immediately or something. <laughs> That's also another good thing. When you, when you see people doing walking meditation, when they, they just decide, I'm gonna muscle through this sleepy foot splat, you know, and like, and everybody's going, you know, I hope they're okay, and then, no, I'm not supposed to say anything, and, then, and that's just funny. If somebody falls down, you know, just pick them up, you know. No, but it's kinhin. This is walking meditation. We, <laughs> compassion goes out the window on kinhin, you know, you just, <coughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. This is more of a historical question, but it's just really getting at me. Mm -hmm. um, when did Buddhism open up to uh, women? I think of the pictures I've seen all are men priests, mm -hmm. and I think now <coughs> women priests. Yeah, no, you're 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 right on. I think uh, that's one of the great contributions that America made to the canon. I mean, the, one of the great things that, that uh, America gave to this collection of, of uh, uh, spiritual practices is they said, sure, you, you can come in. You can, we, we welcome, we welcome Buddhism. And, but the, the No. And uh, as a matter of fact, this was back in 2000. This would have been July of 2000. There was somewhat of a, uh, a brouhaha over the woman who was teaching at a particular retreat where I was, uh, because for the first time, a nun was giving Dharma talks in front of, um, in front of Westerners, and this is 2000, and everyone going was assuming, no, I'm going back to where the practice is very authentic. Well, let's, let's call a spade a spade. It's sexist, it's brutal. There, you know, you, you start going into, you know, a lot of these, uh, 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 these not only the the convents, but also then the, you know, places where they're they're creating these these little monks and so forth. There's sexual abuse that goes on there. We think that it's no, 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 no. It's pure there. We only have that problem in the Catholic archdiocese. No, no. It's it is rampant throughout the world, and I would say, I would argue that Buddhism has a much further way to go. Um, uh, than it, you know, than it's, than it, than it has, uh, has come. Uh, however, Suzuki Roshi, when he came here and the young men and women that helped start San Francisco Zen Center said, heroically, the guys said, we're not doing this unless the women can be ordained too. And Suzuki Roshi, to his credit, knew he was going to lose all sorts of, um, if you will, uh, props from Japan in doing that. And he did it anyway. And that's exactly how society progresses. It's when people take those types of risks. Um, <coughs> and it's a tragedy. I mean, enlightenment, enlightenment isn't, doesn't favor one gender, you know, over another. Um, and it's one of the neatest things about being right here to get really smug about the Bay Area. You're watching, I mean, the whole, the whole you know, ordination of women uh, it really started started happening right here in this community where you have the dynamism, uh, the equal rights, the justice, all that stuff of the West coupled then with this deep tradition of the East and it explodes right here in the Bay Area in a really beautiful way. And, and I'm, this, this Sangha is a product of it, you know. Thanks for that question, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yes, last question. 
Not that I have any personal experience of it, but why not meditate for an hour or more? Usually what happens is the body starts to go for it if your flexibility and your stability, your stability on the cushion uh, is such that there isn't um, a tremendous amount of pain. Now, I'm actually an advocate of having some discomfort because it forces you into the present moment, mm -hmm. right? But if people are like, you know, I'm doing it for an hour, what's the, where do you draw the line? Why not go for three? There's some, at some point, you, you, you actually, uh, you know, the marginal utility of every minute diminishes after, in my view, minute 40. Um, that said, I have sat for, there's a really nice little hour-long morning meditation that I used to do every day, you know, with the community in Berkeley, which I just loved. But at the same time, I mean, I guess I, guess I would just say the purpose of meditation is to be very still for a very long period of time. <coughs> and if you can do that, if, if, if an hour feels really comfortable to you, no harm, no foul. Um, if 10 minutes feels really comfortable to you, no harm, no foul, push it a little. Get as, get as close to you as you can towards that 30 to 40 minute mark. And what that tends to do is it tends, it, it tends to force you into a place that's on the other side of your attachments to comfort. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you. Mm -hmm.